I just finished a series of talks on the core uh, of the Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, and at the end of uh, Tuesday's class, uh, somebody came up to me and she said, um, quotes, uh, can you give a talk on why dating sucks so much? <laughs> Which, on the one hand, is like a, a, a wonderfully massive topic, but on the other hand, it's kind of self-defining. It's like asking why is broccoli such a vegetable, you know? <laughs> dating sucks because it's dating? I mean, it's kind of the definition, right? Uh, if somebody says they love dating, they're either fucking with your head or they're trying to, uh, they're trying to get over on you, I think. Uh, but anyway, I, she went on and uh, she, uh, she defined it as, she said, well, what I really like to know is why do I keep choosing people that are totally unavailable and, uh, you know, how to make, uh, how to find a situation, work in an early dating situation in a way that uh, is um, beneficial. And so that, I thought, was a really fun topic, especially after you cover the Four Noble Truths. It's sort of like, uh, it seems like a fun thing to talk about, and plus it gives me an opportunity to bring in some of my favorite other topics, like, uh, uh, along with Buddhist practice, uh, psychology. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the theories of, of why we fall into self-destructive patterns in our life in our romantic life, and some of the ways we can adjust, especially using Buddhist tools to get us unstuck, as it were. So, um, starting off, um, up until the around 19, 1890s, most of the theory of the mind sort of worked from the idea that human beings are logical creatures, and if we fall into illogical choices, it means there's something wrong with the brain and that, or the senses, and that uh, there was a falling from grace idea, but that man in his, by nature, was somehow a logical creature. Uh, and the, if anything upended this, it was a combination of uh, Darwin, who of course posited the theory of evolution, and um, uh, the great philosopher Schopenhauer, who said that man was driven by this very primordial will to live that was not very logical. It was sort of a will to, uh, to uh, uh, just have power or control. And so these two thinkers really influenced um, Freud and other psychologists like William James who completely uh, reinvestigated the human experience in terms of us not being refined logical creatures but in fact the reason and the times that we are in any way rational in our lives is in fact a very thin veneer placed on top of um, in essence, 
uh, and a large undercurrent of irrationality. Or you could think of it as the tip of the iceberg. Our conscious minds that make us act in logical ways are just the very top that uh, the very tip of the iceberg above the surface of consciousness, but, but below the core of our personality is largely um, raises up from illogic, from drives that are uh, not rational. And uh, of course, Freud came up with a three-part model of who we are. He said that the very first thing we experience as human beings is the id. It's our, basically, the drive, uh, and there's two kinds of drives. One that's libido, a sort of desire for sexual expression and for sensual pleasure, and then there's aggression. And that, too, is a, a desire for control and for um, dominance, and that the id is this underlying core, it's the core of, our, of who we are as human beings. It's the thing that appears first in infants. It's the very, it is the, um, everything that's below the surface of awareness largely is this, these, are these drives. And um, so the core desire of the id is to get pleasure. That's who we are. And then on top of this, to keep us acting in a social way, we have two additional functions. A second realm called the superego is all the laws, rules, regulations, moralities, and the stuff we're taught by our parents is the way we should act, the beliefs we should have. And these, this superego pushes back against the drives of the id. And then finally, we have an ego, which is our consciousness. And the role of the ego is to negotiate between uh, our drives, our, the superego, and also just the world itself, the reality principles, Freud said. And the role of the ego is to try to help us find a solution where we can meet some of these inner drives' needs without acting in ways that will get us in trouble. Uh, when we overly repress our sexual urges, we wind up neurotic. When we, on the other hand, act out on too many primal urges and impulses, we wind up, according to this theory, violating the superego, and that creates feelings of shame and guilt. So you go too far in one direction, repress, suppress too much, and you wind up neurotic, uh, acting out in weird ways, if you act, if you are too suppressive and repressive, that's what happens. But if you don't do enough suppression, then we might transgress the morals of the world around us, and then we feel guilty as a result. So the big question for Freud that he didn't answer very well is, why do we make so many self-sabotaging choices? If our id the primary drive is seeking pleasure. And if we have a reality principle and a superego, what in that mix 
is the mechanism that makes us choose people in our lives for partners who are not available or people who are not empathetic or not kind. Why do we often choose people who are not good for us? Why do we occasionally in our lives wind up in relationships with inappropriate people? Now, uh, there's no apparent mechanism in Freud that would easily answer that, why we keep going back again and again and again. So, Freud came up with a wonderful phrase. I don't speak German, so I'm going to butcher this. Um, what's it called? Klebkreit der libido. Klebkreit der libido. And that means your your desires are sticky and they tend to stick to the first people, types of people you see. It was his attempt to explain why so many people wind up getting hooked on adult versions of their parents. And there's underlying truth about this, that we do often uh, fall into patterns where we seek people who remind us of our caretakers, but it's not a very elegant explanation. Later on, Freud changed this, and he said that we choose often people that cause pain because we have a death drive. And that, to me, is even less of an uh, elegant solution to the problem. So fortunately, in the 1950s, a bunch of British psychologists were not very satisfied with the Freudian model. And... Uh, they created what's known as attachment theory, and they threw out the idea that the core drives uh, are, that we have are libidinous or sexual and aggression, aggressive. And they examined and studied thousands and thousands of infants with their caretakers, and they saw over and over and over again that the, the single determinant function that we have as human beings is to connect with other human beings. We connect from the moment we're born, we seek connection. We do this because, one, we're born vulnerable, and so it's through connecting with caretakers that we feel secure. But there's another reason, which is that human beings are not meant to regulate their emotions in isolation. We have right hemispheres, the emotional realms, and we are meant, literally, to link up or bond via our emotional connection. This is how we achieve any kind of emotion regulation in our life, any emotional stability. The theory goes that it, it's an outgrowth from monkeys. When monkeys groom each other, they bond. And that bonding makes them feel connected and secure. And in that grooming, they also feel cared for. And they also emotionally regulate each other. They calm each other down, or they stimulate each other. And we do it through uh, attunement and uh, empathy. Attunement means we make connections with our eyes, we take each other in, and then empathy, we reflect back to each other the moods and emotional states that we're in, and in doing that, 
we help each other regulate our emotional states. So, one of the theories that comes about is that, um, from attachment theory, is that those of us that have secure attachments when we're young, we develop uh, the right hemisphere in a way that we can regulate the fear impulses and, and we can reach out to others and seek emotion regulation and we can eventually establish secure bonds and we tend to then be attracted to people who manifest secure connection styles. So a child that has a parent who's attentive and reliable and emotionally tolerant and uh, uh, and creates an idyllic state of showing how to act out of emotions, that child will be attracted to those qualities in partners, and those partners will be more likely to last in relationship. But if we grow up in insecure environments, where not all the time we feel emotionally connected, we don't feel uh, always secure, always... Um, Loved, we don't. We feel there's a large subset of emotions that are not tolerated very well. Well, then we actually develop tools to help manage those situations as children. We develop insecure hypervigilance, where we're constantly monitoring the relationship. We are constantly on edge we don't override our fear impulses as well. And we basically choose people, oddly enough, who continue this process because our entire coping strategies and the very model of where we've found any connection in our childhood sets what's known as a relational model that we seek out. So even though we've been with people who are not very available in our childhood, we will seek out people who remind us of those very same qualities. Because all of our tools, our adapting techniques, what we're familiar with, will pull us back to this repetition compulsion. A third model is that some children have so few of their needs met because their parents are narcissistic completely unavailable, or the opposite, completely controlling to a degree that it creates a feeling of claustrophobia, those children will become avoidant as they grow up. And sadly, but uh, it's very much the case, when insecure people in adult life meet avoidant people, they generally become very attracted to them. Because an avoidant person who wants to keep other people, especially intimacy and vulnerability at arm's length, reminds the insecure of their childhood, the way they felt their parents being abandoning. And similarly, at first, for the avoidant, the avoidant will soak in the attention because the early part of the relationship will be primarily often sexual or flirtatious. And so there'll be enough dopamine present that the avoidant will stay around just long enough to get some of their needs met. And then, once any kind of demand is started up, 
will try to escape. And so the drama of the avoidance and the insecure looks like this, and then <laughs> like that. And it creates this ongoing pattern where uh, people can, uh, rather than seeing that they're not getting their needs met, continually try to return again and again and again to abandoning situations. Because it reminds them of that once that core emotional relationship in their life as infants that they didn't get their deepest needs met when they were the most vulnerable. And uh, so that's one theory of why people uh, often will be attracted to um, uh, partners that are unreliable. Now, um, there's a couple of outgrowths of this and different theories that have grown that also uh, show additional ways that we wind up being self-sabotaging. Um, one result of growing up in an environment where uh, we don't feel securely attended to or connected in a very important time of our life, we tend to fall in what's known as rumination. Rumination is the tendency in life when we feel anxious or uncomfortable in our lives. We feel uh, restless or we feel uh, there's something missing, a sense of uh, a lack of purpose or an underlying sense of, of just insecurity. Rumination is the tendency to, instead of staying focused on whatever task is in front of us or finding a task, to get caught up in thinking about a relationship that we're in or a relationship that's fallen apart to get caught up and snared, especially by a rejection. That's kind of the rumination disorder's gold standard, the uh, rejecting experience. And the ruminator will basically uh, keep themselves constantly hypervigilant, on guard, and will overly dramatize every new relationship based on this primordial feeling of being abandoned and will constantly expect it. And so when any new relationship happens or after a relationship is concluded, we'll very often fall into uh, a tendency to when they're at work or not with their partner or when they're in a situation where they could be focused on something skillful, will instead abandon the present and go off into trying to puzzle out, figure out, or replay uh, the storyline of a relationship that ended uh, unsatisfactorily. Rumination uh, is uh, correlative with other things like addictions, depression, and eating disorders, and uh, it's a, a very strong self-sabotager of relationships. Another interesting finding is by a group called the Gottman Institute. 
uh, and they they interviewed thousands of people, and they broke down the 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 two types of people they were most interested into people that could manage to stay in relationships and people who wanted to be in relationships but couldn't. They threw out uh, from the survey people who had no interest. They were mostly interested in that two categories. And they named them rather uh, unfortunately, but they named them masters and disasters. <laughs> and so uh, I'll use their terminology, although it's a bit, unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, judgmental. But, uh, <laughs> so they found that masters and disasters present actually very, very similarly. Even as therapists sitting doing the, uh, the testing, they could not tell the difference between someone who was a master and a disaster which is bad news for everybody because if a therapist who knows what to look for and has been interviewing thousands of people cannot figure out the difference while they're interviewing the person and giving them loaded questions then it's highly unlikely that anybody else can. There was however a huge significant difference between masters and disasters. Masters who could actually be in sustained relationships even though they presented no differently than disasters, masters beneath the surface when you actually put um, monitors on their skin that would check for high blood pressure, uh, increased pulse, neural activity, potentiation uh, in the muscles. People who were masters would not be activated during the question. They'd be calm. And even when the questioner was asking loaded questions, the master would be able to answer without too much feeling of being triggered. On the other hand, the moment you start asking questions about relationships to a disaster, guess what happens? Their heart rate, even though they're presenting is very calm and present, their heart rate starts pumping. Their... Uh, they tense up, key muscul muscular groups start triggering, they uh, literally the hairs on the back of the neck, they go into what's known as a fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. Basically the HPA axis of the brain has been triggered. They literally feel like they're in a threat situation. This is a classic state of the amygdala being triggered. So. Disasters are people who basically feel below the level of consciousness, they expect something to go wrong. They literally, in an embodied way, literally become activated. They expect there to be uh, something to happen. They've learned how to manage, how to show up on a date, or to present themselves and seem calm. But just beneath the surface is this, uh, this jumpiness, this feeling essentially of being under threat. What's the threat? Abandonment. Almost everybody who tests for this state has been through uh, an abandonment experience, and they've come to expect it. So uh, 
why is it that this group uh, can wind up in relationships for a couple of months before they, uh, they get triggered and flee? Well, generally what happens is in the early months of a relationship, the, two, the first two or three months, our brains are loaded with a reward neurotransmitter called dopamine. You are on drugs in the first three months of a relationship. There's not enough Wellbutrin in any pill. It's basically like the dopamine that's put in your system by cocaine. It's pure dopamine and it's most wonderful sort, the kind where everything we say is wonderful, everything, everything he or she says is just great, and they're really into the same movie I like, and this is perfect, and they like, they went to the same summer camp this is meant to be. <laughs> And of course, what happens after three months is that the dopamine supply, which is never meant to last, uh, diminishes. And then what we're left with is this underlying threat state. And then the moment somebody says something that's difficult or challenging, especially something that either demands commitment or indicates uh, um, lack of certainty, then the person who is constantly triggered will flee, will bail, go off into rumination, and then find a reason to give up, or B, become, on the other hand, demanding constant attention and will drive their partner away because they're so under a fear of threat. So uh, there's various different theories of how to work with attachment disorders, how to undo repetition compulsions to date, uh, people that are not meeting our needs to uh, de-trigger ourselves when we feel anxious, to uh, be comfortable in realms where we feel constantly uh, insecure. Uh, one of the models is, of course, the therapeutic one, and the idea for that goes along the lines of uh, the therapist is there to uh, represent to us all of the, at first, the, uh, the basically withstands through our transference, the way we project, all of the expectations of abandonment or um, swarming behavior or claustrophobia that we expect. And the therapist is there to basically to Take that in and then through empathy, empathy and attunement and being reliably consistent uh, presents an entirely different model over time than what we experienced in early childhood. And then the theory goes is that we go through what's known as an abandonment depression. How fun is that, right? That sounds good. So, uh, Abandonment depression is the theory uh, that the only way we can undo these models of, of, uh, of unreliable partners that we choose is by to go into a, a depression over the lack of love and care that we experienced in childhood. And through that depression, we wipe away that model 
and open to different relational possibilities and patterns in our lives. So that's the therapeutic model. And they, to certain degrees, it works. Fortunately, there are other uh, tools available to us. Um, one of the exciting uh, things that's been established through clinical practice is that having any meditation practice at all in your life begins to lessen the triggering of the amygdala and takes people out of constant fight, flight, or freeze. Now, if you wait until you're in the anxious parts of your experience of the day or during a relationship where you feel triggered to develop a practice, uh, what's going to happen is you'll be generally too jumpy to sit. You'll find it very difficult. But the study by the University of Pittsburgh showed that people who meditate even 20 minutes a day uh, for a short period of time they begin to override the signals from the HPA axis that keeps them jumpy or agitated. And that's very important because what leads often to rumination, to underlying anxiety, to expectations of abandonment, to hypervigilance, to uh, feelings of being on edge uh, are underlying states of stress. So just that alone gives us a very strong tool to work with. Um, another uh, key tool that we can use is if we do have any tendencies to ruminate, especially early on in relationships or during uh, difficult stages of relationships where we find ourselves caught up replaying the same thought over and over again, stuck. It's very, very useful to use Buddhist tools and uh, developing awareness of what we're thinking, detaching, and then switching thoughts to something that's skillful. So the Buddha suggested uh, a couple of different techniques. One technique is to reflect on times of one's own virtue instead of when you find yourself without a task and caught up ruminating about uh, a, a past relationship or a present one, Instead to bring your mind to reflect on times when you've done something skillful for someone or someone's done something skillful for you. Now, the reason this is useful is pretty obvious. We're shifting the mind away from inclining to live in expectations of relational disasters. And we're moving the mind towards reflecting on times when we have success interpersonally reflecting on all the things that we bring to other people in our lives, reflecting on all the use that we have, so that we don't feel that we are as likely to be abandoned. Um, another thing that's, I think, very, very important about spiritual practice is that all of Buddhist practice is about facing discomfort. You can't have a practice if you only want to see the good things in life. The first foundation of practice is that in life there is difficulty. There is stress. There is discomfort. There will be frustrating experiences in life. And this is very valuable because um, many, many people fall under the mistake 
the mistaken assumption that a strong relationship is a relationship where there's no arguments, there's no disagreements, there's never any tension, there's never any uh, cross-purposes. They think that's the sign of a healthy relationship. In fact, if you want to look at the studies and see from the Gottman Institutes and other, other institutes that study healthy relationships, one of the things they find is that if you want to see, uh, determine which couple is going to be the healthiest, it's the ones that can have conflict and work through it. It's a far healthier sign to, at times, have tension, uh, to have to work through uh, times where there's feelings of disconnect. Because if you develop those skills, you basically create an underlying uh, landscape where people know they have, they don't feel on guard or on edge anytime there's any sign of uh, disharmony. Um, when you see relationships where there's no conflict, in my experience, and I've worked with people for many, many years, in my experience, somebody is brushing a lot of things under the carpet. Because relationships are where we all are the most vulnerable, even in the, well, from the most secure connection styles in childhood. We still all have difficult experiences. We still all feel vulnerable. And there always will be times when there will be, in uh, intimate human interactions, there will be times when there will be mix-ups, uh, miscommunications, even if we really, really focus on those skills. And so the ability to tolerate conflict, to not feel there's something wrong, just as there's nothing wrong when the body feels sick or the body ages or the, you know, uh, we experience separation or... The Buddha said these things happen. They don't mean that there's something wrong. It means that there's something that needs our attention. There's something that needs our acceptance. There's something that needs to be addressed. The skills that we use to work with conflict are a couple of things. The first is the ability to sit and really not focus on the details of what's being communicated to us but listen to the emotions that are being expressed. When people in relationships focus on the details, for instance, you never call me up. That's a statement. When somebody hears that, they'll instantly debate it. But I called you up just the other day. No, but you don't call me up as much as I call you. That's not true. I call you up all the time. Whenever we get caught up in details, statements of truth, what will always happen is, invariably, people will de debate the details, the truth claims. But if we focus on emotions, those cannot be debated, and other people don't tend to hear those as defensively as they hear truth statements. Because when we state feelings, there's an implicit subjectivity to the claim. 
So, for instance, if I say, I feel I'm not as connected with you as I'd like, that is a fuck of a lot harder for you to argue than me saying, you never call me up, or you never return my calls. The first, saying you never call me up sounds like an attack, an accusation. The second, I feel like I'm not as connected with you as I'd like to be is simply an, a, a statement about how I feel. When we learn to couch our communications in this way, we can work through virtually any conflict, so long as we take turns to hear and repeat back each other's emotional states. Another fascinating, and I, I feel like I'm overloading you, so this will be the last of two. Um, it's very important to have support from one's uh, larger community. The sociologist Robin Dunbar found that couples that uh, have large support groups are far more likely to uh, feel less threatened and be less reactive because we know we have a place that we can bring our issues. And human beings are meant to connect with larger groups when we isolate when we wind up hoping that one other person can meet all of our emotional needs, we don't feel secure. In fact, we feel underlying sense of anxiousness because we know how tenuous our support is. The optimum number he found is somewhere, and overall, you can have over 100 acquaintances in life, but you need about somewhere, he said, between 6 and 10 B-type people, support people that you feel you can emotionally open to. When we have that, we don't put all the pressure on our A person. That's the person you see every day. Um, and finally, another wonderful study, a group of people who were observing couples found that um, Throughout the day, we are constantly, unconsciously bidding for other people's attention. And um, bidding is not like overtly, hey, look at me. Hey, you know, pay attention to me. Bidding is generally something that's done so subtly and unconsciously, we're not aware that we're asking for attention. And very often, it can be uh, not be given enough awareness. So for instance, Somebody will say, uh, oh, that's interesting, while they're looking at something. Or, oh, I just saw this crazy bird outside of the window. Or, oh, the strangest thing happened to me, or whatever. And each of these little statements is a bid for connection. And they found when they studied people that people who routinely stop and turn and give attention when, there's, when their partners are bidding for their attention, at least 80% of the time, wind up feeling secure and in lasting relationships. But there's a second group of people that only are willing to turn to their partners half as much, about 40% or less, and those people rarely last in any meaningful, intimate partnership for more than a few months. So even though we might feel that what's going on in our lives or, you know, uh, stuff is really important, at times if we learn to either then pay attention or to come back and bring attention 
afterwards. It's a worthy technique to develop. So I hope there was something of interest in here. Some of the techniques and insights were of interest. And uh, next week, I promise you, I'll go back to a more Buddhisty topic, but I like bringing these out. So I thank you for listening.